You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Acting Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. I like how it warns me that there's recording in progress. Now is your chance to exit the highway. All right. All right. Uh, shall we just jump right in? Sure. All right. So this is perfect timing. You guys want to talk about AEB, automatic emergency braking. And the reason it's perfect timing is uh, the other day, my wife was driving across the George Washington Bridge. Our car has AEB. She was changing lanes. The guy that she was merging into behind, he slammed on his brakes. The AEB did not engage. She hit him. Um, and, I, you know, it's, the, it's the, the, the left front corner of the car. So my guess is these radar systems, I mean, you guys will talk more about it. They're, they're, their field of view is probably limited or they just don't work in New Jersey. I don't know. So where, where did you, can you, can you run me through that again? Was she on the highway? What was, what she speed was, was, she, was she traveling? So the George Washington bridge. So the right. speed is anywhere from zero to <laughs> 50 miles per hour. That I'm not sounds like DC. Yeah. I, I couldn't have been that fast. Cause like you see the damage on the car and you know, modern cars are plastic. So it looks more dramatic than it really is, but it's not that dramatic. Like airbags didn't go off. Nothing like that. It was more of a, probably a, a 10 mile per hour tap is my guess. Okay. Because, you know, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the AEB that you see on vehicles is kind of the, the base AEB that's really intended only to function at 25 miles per hour and under. So, the, yeah, this, I couldn't imagine being going faster than that, but we've had that, right. you know, we've heard that alarm, alarm before of the beep, 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 and the car stopping itself, right. which I think is amazing. But, you know, you assume it would work everywhere. There is a button on the steering wheel to, it looks like you can disengage it. I don't know why, why, why you'd ever want to do that. And there's no indication that it's on or off. It's just a button. You press it. And like the old Stephen Wright joke, eventually some woman in Germany will send me a postcard saying, knock it off. Well, you said there's, there's no, you can't understand why anybody would ever turn it off. Some cars have automatic emergency braking systems that will uh, catastrophically stop the car in the middle of a highway when it sees a shadow going across the highway. So if you own that particular kind of car, you might well want to turn it off. That's one of the problems. Um, you know, there's, there's both a whole range of technical and regulatory problems with these. So the technical problems are that some of them are really poorly designed and they stop when you don't, uh, when there's no reason to stop really, going across railroad tracks, shadows being cast on the road, a lot of other spurious indicators that cause it to freak out and jam on the brakes. Um, there's also problems with the update. Okay, every computer cycle has to think about what is, you know, the sensory inputs that are coming, it has to think about it and process that. And so there's an interval between the first update and the second update. And we don't know how long it takes for the automatic emergency braking system, assuming everything is working correctly, to update from one input to another. So in something, a rapidly changing situation, like on the George Washington Bridge, by the way, it's always a bad idea to drive across that. So, you know, <laughs> shame on her. But anyway, you know, there's an update frequency 
that uh, limits the speed with which an, any system, including the automatic emergency braking system, can respond to a change of inputs. And third, you don't, as you pointed out, you don't know what the range is for the sensors, what the field of view is, what the field of regard is, um, how that information all gets processed into the uh, central processing unit and data processing unit that determines whether or not to jam on the brakes. And Michael can go into the, the regulatory issues in a lot of detail, but fundamentally, that system that failed on your wife's car was completely consistent with current federal motor vehicle standards for automatic emergency braking systems. Right, Michael? You're muted. That's yeah, you're going to tell me that these standards for this is just like everything else you've told me. Hey, they don't exist. Right. They, 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 there are no standards for automatic emergency braking. Um, there, uh, there was a voluntary agreement that the, all of the major automakers entered into um, with the National Highway Traffic Sa Safety Administration, as well as um, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, where reports were involved as well in negotiating it um, to some extent, I believe. And they basically got promises that all manufacturers would have automatic emergency braking installed across their entire line by X date, which is, I believe, coming up really soon, I think 2023. Um, and essentially, the AEB that went into those vehicles only had to meet the what, what is generally called the city street AEB. So it's, it's effective in, you know, what are, I, I believe, about 70% of the crashes that we see um, are urban and under 25 miles per hour. Um, so it's great that they, you know, covered those crashes. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the fatalities you see are at higher speeds. Um, and a lot of it, you know, the AB that was promised under this volunteer agreement didn't include that. It didn't include pedestrian detection. It didn't include you know, the ability to function in a wide range of environments. It didn't include anything to prevent the type of incidents that Fred's talking about, like phantom braking. Um, so here we are, uh, you know, over a half decade later, seven years later, and we are seeing these problems. And NHTSA is saying they're going to come out with a rulemaking shortly that addresses a lot of these. We hope it does. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we still have a lot of concerns about the performance of these systems on the road. We've seen a lot of problems um, with specific versions of it. For instance, you know, you can, you can sense a big hunk of metal in front of you a lot easier than you can, you know, a motorcycle, a, a pedal cyclist, a uh, pedestrian. And so there are, you know, the, the basic functionality of the city street AEB is to detect vehicles that prevent vehicle to vehicle collisions. Um, adding pedestrian detection and other things to that, you know, are, are you know, those systems aren't perfect yet. We've, we've um, seen studies come out that suggest that, you know, the, these things obviously don't work at high speeds because they're not tested there. They don't work well around turns. They don't work well at night in unlit conditions. So, there's still a lot of work to be done on the technology, getting the proper technology actually installed into the fleet. And we hope that NHTSA's rulemaking does a lot to um, 
push the manufacturers in that direction. Well, to follow up what Michael said, um, they don't work well when you're turning a corner and they don't work well at night. Unfortunately, turning a corner at night is when most of the pedestrian accidents or contact with pedestrians occurs. Um, it's a very dangerous condition that is completely outside of the scope of what any of the suggestions, there are no standards, but any of the suggestions for design uh, currently take into consideration. So, you know, it's as though you were told to keep your doors closed, except when there is a likelihood that somebody's going to come into your house unannounced. Um, probably not the best st strategy for minimizing pedestrian deaths. Uh, not to mention children dodging out from between cars, which is a huge, very challenging technical problem, but also something that is reasonably expected, and we've all seen it, in an urban environment. Yes, that's so where did this all start? Because from a consumer's point of view, emer automatic emergency braking sounds amazing. And we've, we've even seen those television commercials with a little kid running out in front of a car and the car magically stopping. Um, so who... Who started this? And is this more of just kind of like, is this another marketing term? It almost sounds like at this point where it's, hey, kind of works. It's automated. Or it's full self-driving asterisk. Not really. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a, a big problem is that people expect a lot more out of this technology than it than it can achieve at this point. You know, it's being advertised. Um, as you know something that's going to prevent accidents and it does and you know the, the the studies have shown that even the what we have installed on the fleet at this point um is probably working at right you know it's probably preventing 30 to 50 percent um collisions so depending on what whose data you look at um but it, it does appear to be working and so you know our push here really is to get more of this more and better technology so we can protect at higher speed so we can pick pedestrians in all of these scenarios where the vehicles are having trouble sensing pedestrians. Um, I don't know if you saw the news recently about NHTSA's now investigating two motorcycle incidents where a Tesla on autopilot has um, basically just creamed a motorcyclist that it didn't see in front of it. Um, and that, bring, that brings up a lot of questions, you know, in the, in the automatic emergency braking area. I mean, what types of sensors are these cars using to do this detection? You know, we know that they're using um, radar, LIDAR, camera systems, and all of those systems feed the, the vehicle's response. So um, we're seeing a lot of problems you know long term with these as well you really have to maintain these systems you have to calibrate them frequently to ensure they're working properly and you know these vehicles need possibly to be able to do that better themselves you can't take a you can't take your car in to have it recalibrated every time you hit a speed bump um so these systems need to be hardened they need to work for you know longer than a decade um because they're critical safety components so there's a lot of issues here that that we're still, you know, puzzling through. The industry's puzzling through, and this is puzzling through, um, and bringing in data and research um, to try to figure out what's the safest path forward. So that that's a you brought up a great point of, of recalibrating, and checking these. So every X thousand miles, will bring a car in to get it checked out, and they'll change the oil, rotate the air and the tires, and all that stuff, but. 
there's never any mention of like checking the cameras, checking radar. So is anyone doing that yet? Well, there are probably some industry standards, but I, I'm unaware of any consumer. I'm unaware of any company that's trying to really address the consumer issues associated with that. Uh, you know, you've got a car and from time to time, you probably get a dirty windshield, right? And you learn to compensate for that. You don't immediately jump out and clean all the bugs off your windshield as soon as a, a bug hits the windshield. These sensors have the same susceptibility to dirt and grime. And uh, there's really no directive on how often or even the proper ways to get out and clean off all of your sensors to make sure that they maintain their nominal capability. So there's, you know, even beyond calibration, which is of course a, a huge issue, you've got to just do the routine maintenance of keeping them clean, uh, keeping them aligned, making sure that, you know, you haven't hit your radar on a, a signpost or something when you were parking your car carelessly. There's, there's a huge number of issues associated with that. But as a consumer, I don't even know where the radar is in my car. I mean, I can see where the camera is. It's kind of in front of the rear view mirror. The radar, I can take a guess that it's kind of in the center of the grill area, but it's not obvious. I can't see it. Right. And it should be obvious and you should be able to see it so that you can keep it clean. Um, it's one of the evolving issues that Michael was talking about. How do real people in real world situations respond to these advanced sensors and, and somehow have a sense of what they have to do in order to keep them all current and active. You know, in an airplane, you've, you've all seen the people who climb out on the airplane and wipe off the windshield before the plane takes off, right? They clean the radome to make sure there are no bugs on there that are going to interfere with the, um, with the radar signal that's coming in or the weather radar. Very few of us have people who do that for us in our own cars. And, uh, you know, you need to address how these day-to-day -day foreign objects and uh, dirt and grime that are going to accumulate on your sensors affect the capability. This should be part of the standards and the tests that uh, NHTSA puts together. We hope it is. Um, there's nothing there yet. Are, are any states doing this? Because once a year in New York State, I have to get my car inspected. Um, I mean, at this point, it's pretty much pro forma because it's a relatively new car. They just kind of look at it and go, ah, yeah, you're fine. But I mean, is this something where they, because they're checking admissions, are they checking? I, I can't imagine that they are because, you know, and the missions are fairly um, standardized from vehicle to vehicle, whereas automatic emergency braking and, and the warning systems, hard collision warning and some of the other systems are completely proprietary for each manufacturer and, I, I don't even know that the states know how to um, read those systems. I can't imagine there's a state that's that's testing that as part of safety. Look, we're still trying to get some states to actually have a safety inspection every year, right? Um, there are a lot of states that have been backing out of that lately. So I, asking them to do that type of work is going probably going too far for states. However, um, there is room for NHTSA to address this in some ways. I mean, from experience, we know how well people take care of their cars. And, and that is, you know, there are probably 50% of the folks out there who get a recall letter and want to have it done immediately. And then there's another 20% that might get it done eventually. And then there's 30% that never do anything and don't care. 
So what, what, what are we going to do to ensure that the safety systems in those vehicles are working to protect pedestrians who aren't responsible for the maintenance of the vehicle? Um, that's an important question. It's, it's uh, you know, maintenance is critical for, for you know, the, the newer vehicles. I mean, I've had air conditioner issues three times in the last couple of years, and every time it was a software problem uh, for Volkswagen. Now, that's one thing. But it, that's not safety critical. I can ride around without AC with no problem. Um, but if that's you know a software issue on the emergency braking system, that's a lot more important. Is NHTSA or anyone putting in place these standards? Like, is there anything coming? Nothing that we're aware of, and certainly nothing at the federal level. Uh, the inspection of safety inspection of cars is a state responsibility. So each state has got its own way of doing things. Uh, one thing we would like the government to do and have advocated is that they adopt a model standard, particularly looking forward to ever more sophisticated electronics that the states are just never going to be in a position to uniformly qualify and check and make sure everything is working right. Now, my Subaru has a built-in test and diagnostic system for the uh, eyesight system, which includes the um, automatic emergency braking. And so I can be driving down the road. All of a sudden, I'll see a placard on my uh, dashboard that says, eyesight's not working. You're on your own, essentially. And which is, it's great to know that the eyesight's not working, but it never says, why is it not working? And then it kind of comes back on when it feels like coming back on. But this indicates to me that it has a built-in test capability and some, some ability for self-calibration, if you will. And um, that should be part of a standard for cars that are being used by people, because as Michael points out, not everybody is attentive to the maintenance. And, uh, you know, at least as a minimum, if the driver were alerted that these systems aren't working, uh, they could either take them in for maintenance or at least be aware that they perhaps might want to drive a little more slowly as they approach a city. So I, again, as a consumer, I'm just kind of like, I'm just buying into marketing hype. It almost sounds like this is like a, an FTC issue because it's, you know, it's advertising something as being automatic emergency braking. That's, you know, you can't do that with other products. Like you can't make wild claims. You muted, Michael. Michael keeps muting himself. He's new to computer. Without, without getting into Tesla, um, you know, there's a lot of wild claims out there. And, you know, if... For the most part, automatic emergency braking, you know, it's it's kind of working. And when it does, it's awesome. You know, it's saving lives. There's there's really it's it's not a bad thing. It's just that it could be so much better and it could be in a lot more cars. Um, and, you know, this I, I'm afraid, too, that some of the semiconductor shortages have have held up a lot of manufacturers from getting this in to their vehicles. I mean, we see, if you look at the manufacturers across the board who've gotten this into their vehicles, you know, there, there are a dozen manufacturers out of the 20, I believe, that have, have AEB in 100% of their vehicles. And that's great because that's actively out there saving lives. Chrysler, I believe, at last check was around 14 or 15%. So they're not doing so well. Um, but 
it's, you know, this is one of those things, the quicker we can get this technology into vehicles at higher and more advanced levels where it's working to detect pedestrians, you know, in the daytime and then at night and then around turns. And, you know, the, the more we can develop it and get it into vehicles, the faster we're going to see fatality and injury reductions that, that we really need in this area because there are so many um, frontal collisions that, that, where 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 application of brakes could could prevent um, tragic results. Now, Fred, from your perspective, have you come across any of these systems that you think, oh, these this manufacturer is doing a really good job and being really smart about it, and on the contrary, anyone doing a really bad job? Well, like Michael mentioned, the phantom braking is is a characteristic of people who are doing a, a pretty bad job. But again, you know, we, we shouldn't let better be the enemy of good. Any of these systems that are installed in a car will have some beneficial capability. Um, the ones that are really bad in terms of phantom braking probably work more or less well when they're in an environment for which they were designed. Uh, you know, clearly this is still evolving. Right, so I, you know, I can't say any particular brand is particularly good or any particular any brand is particularly bad. You'd have to do a very sophisticated analysis and look at a right. whole wide spectrum of conditions and operating conditions and designs. And I can tell you that in my car, it's uh, it's popped a few times and saved my saved my bumpers from having to be repaired a few times. So uh, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I, I have the same situation here, just except on the George Washington Bridge, um, which I right. you know you've informed me never to drive on, and I agree. Right. And I think that's something people really need to know. You know, they, they do hear some marketing hype about these systems. Some manufacturers are more careful about that than others. But in the end, they, you know, this isn't a system you want to rely on. You know, this is something that happened. It, it is emergency braking. It's not something you should expect your vehicle to do. You certainly shouldn't rely on it um, because it's it's not reliable um all the time we see a lot of circumstances where it doesn't work you know i've heard anecdotes of people putting you know boxes in the road and testing their vehicles out on them and crushing boxes and you know having their neighbors come over and do the same and it's you know it just doesn't work in some vehicles it seems and that can be a matter of calibration it can be a matter of a lot of things um but it's you know i think what we're looking for is for NHTSA to put in place some rules that ensure, you know, that this stuff has a baseline safety benefit and that the performance characteristics are dialed in somewhat so we don't see a lot of these potentially unsafe incidents like phantom braking. Um, and, and, you know, trying to push manufacturers to build systems that last for the life of the vehicle and are consumer friendly, don't require a lot of hands-on um, maintenance and, um, and and importantly, don't confuse consumers into you know thinking that they're more capable than they are. All right. So remember to clean your radar if you can find it and know how to clean it. Uh, so let's talk phantom braking. I mean, I remember years ago there was phantom acceleration. Now right. is this like you know global warming? It used to be global cooling. Come on, guys. What's the real story here? Phantom braking, a shadow caused my car to break. I don't believe it. 
So we, you know, we first, I think, heard about this issue on some, from an owner of a Nissan Rogue in 2017 or 18, um, who said, you know, they were just driving down the road and came across some train tracks and their car slammed on the brakes um, with nothing in the road. And, you know, they thought it was dangerous and it obviously is, you know, and, and it's something um, that's, that's, you know, a little new to all of us because there aren't there, I believe there was one uh, recall on um, some Toyotas prior to that day, but we, it's not something we saw a lot of because, you know, automatic emergency braking hadn't been out in the fleet. Um, to what kind of car was this? It could have been a cry for help, you know? Could have been a suicide attempt. Was it a Carmen Via? Just be like envying. It was a Nissan Rogue, and that was that was the crazy thing. Is, is it, it? You know, it was stopping people on railroad tracks sometimes, which was seemed like a, a highly dangerous thing to me. Um, so we did some research and found a lot of similar complaints. People in parking garages and other things, and filed a petition with NHTSA um, for an investigation uh, to find that there was a defect there. Um, unfortunately, they just have they kind of sat on it. They let Nissan do a service campaign rather than a recall that, that, you know, it's supposedly does the same thing as a recall. It repairs these folks vehicles, but in fact, we don't have any way to track um, because it's not a recall, whether owners actually came in for these repairs. You know, we don't know what's happened. If it was a recall, we would know that owners were being notified. We would have a Nissan would be required to submit report cards essentially um, every quarter on how the recall is going. Um, so whenever NHTSA lets a manufacturer off you know, on something that we think is a pretty clear safety issue, like vehicles slamming on their brakes in the middle of the road and on train tracks, um, then it, you know, it's disappointing. We think that there should have been a recall there just to ensure that consumers have the protections afforded by the Safety Act when it comes to recalls. Um, so that was our first experience. And then recently... Um, there were there was a story. The Washington Post had done some research on NHTSA complaints and found that there had been an explosion in uh, phantom braking complaints in Teslas. And what they found and what in the article was a lot of complaints. And then when we looked into it, we we also saw that there had been some updates to the Teslas prior to these complaints coming. And it looked like the update was intended to fix a phantom braking issue. So we're still a little confused on that one. NHTSA is still in the middle of the investigation. We're not exactly sure what's going there, but it looked to us like the an, an over-the-air update or a software update that Tesla put into effect exacerbated the phantom braking problem in that circumstance. Um, Honda is also invest, under investigation, I believe, for, for some similar problems with their system. And, you know, we're not sure in, in these cases where the defect is. I mean, it could be in the sensing. It could be in the um the guts of the system that causes the brakes to be applied we don't we just don't know at this point um so we're kind of waiting for NHTSA to 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 finish those investigations up and give us a little insight i want to amplify what michael was saying about service bulletins versus recall um, a recall is something that's initiated by NHTSA and it requires the manufacturer to notify all of the owners of record that there is a problem with the car and that uh, they can have it fixed for free if they bring it into the dealer. 
this is something that, as Michael said, uh, we amplify because we send out a summary of recalls to all of our members and other organizations can do the same thing. A service bulletin is done exclusively by the manufacturer. They don't have any requirement to send it out to all of the owners of record. So it's kind of a sleeper issue. If you bring your car in and say there's an issue, they can say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, here it is. We'll fix it for you. There's no requirement with the service bulletin that they do it for free. So some people are reluctant to have those updates when they're in a service bulletin. And there's no mechanism for organizations like ours to amplify the service bulletin because we simply don't know about it. So we can't get it out to our members. And um, it's, a, it's a really inferior way of doing the job, but it saves the companies a lot of money because of course they don't have to do as many repairs. So uh, it, it's an issue that, that we address a lot in our public filings and, and you know, in our day-to-day operations. So if I'm Jane and Joe consumer, how would I find out if my vehicle had a, had a safety bulletin associated with it? Well, you there, you know, I think the quickest way is probably to make sure you're signed onto your manufacturer's online portal. Um, where you Maybe the Center for Auto Safety has such a thing. Oh, uh, there's a lot of manufacturers love that because it also provides them, you know, another place to advertise and to get you into the dealer and that kind of thing. So, it, you know, it works both ways, but they work well. I mean, for being notified of recalls and that sort of thing. I get texts from Volkswagen when I have a recall. I get texts that, um, that are intended to annoy me when I haven't gone in and gotten it either. But if um, I was a subscriber to the Center for Auto Safety's vehicle safety check, would I find this information out? Come on, I gave you a layup yes. question. So no, no, I was going to get to that, but it, you know that the no, you led it the wrong way. Boo. The first place, you know, they need to be in touch with their manufacturers, and I'll tell you why. It's because NHTSA and our safety check don't receive these documents until a few months later when they actually get them turned around. So if you want the most up-to-date information, stick, go, make sure you're signing with your manufacturer, not just to receive recall communications, which are really important, um, but to receive all sorts of other things. Because if there are customer programs that come out that they are notifying you about or notifying their general customer base about, you'll hear about it first if you're on the list. But then again, subscribing for vehicle safety checks, probably a good idea too. That's a great idea. That that provides you with a more kind of a review of what's happening on your vehicle in the past few weeks. So you can click through there and see all of the manufacturer communications. That's going to be not just the service bulletins, but also, you know, you may have a buzz going on in your, in your truck that you can't identify. There may be a service bulletin for that. So it's always worth a look through this. Michael's too successful. He's never done sales, so he doesn't understand that that sales pitch. I think we need to get him out selling Ginzu knives for a while to kind of build up that uh, that muscle memory for him. I, I agree. But look, listener, the vehicle safety check subscription stuff, very easy to sign up for, very helpful. End of sales pitch. Michael will work on them for next week. He'll have, he'll have it down pat, or at least he'll be selling knives door to door. At autosafety.org. Yes. Of course. Yes. Yes. Go to autosafety.org. You'll find it there. All right. So, okay. This week we've covered automatic emergency braking and some phantom braking stuff. Um, I think we've got enough for this episode. Yeah. Stay tuned to next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye bye.
For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.